A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, opens with a very profound statement. He says, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. I want you to think about that for a second. The most important thing about you is the thing you think about God. Now, I imagine the show, The Family Feud, I don't know what brought this to mind, perhaps. It's because my sister uh, and her family was actually on the show. Uh, they did quite well. They won a couple of times. And so I want you to imagine with the contestants standing at the podium and they're ready to hit that red button and Steve Harvey walks up and he says, we've surveyed 100 people, top seven answers on the board. What's the most important thing about you? Boom, you hit the red button. What comes out of your mouth? What do you think? How do you answer that question for yourself? Would you say my family, uh, my, my job, uh, my education, perhaps, my dashing good looks? I don't know. Um, it's strange some of the answers that come out. My education, my health. Uh, I know some of the friends of mine, they'd probably say their boat, to which their wife would not say. Good answer. Um, how many think you would hit the red button and blurt out my view of God? Probably would get a big red X on that one. Not too many people would respond that way. But this morning, what I'd like you to do, I'd like to invite you to take a moment to explore this question. What are your deepest thoughts of God? What do you conceive him to be like? And as you do this, let me ask you, do you think you've got it right? Or is there room possibly for you to grow in your understanding of God? For me, I remember reading Knowledge of the Holy um, back in my college years as I was coming back to Christ. Aidan Wilson Tozer, A.W. Tozer, was a pastor and an author uh, of this book, and it was considered in the day a must-read book, and today it's considered a classic. And I remember reading this opening statement way back then, and so let's unpack that. Why? Why would it matter what I think about God? Well, Tozer goes on to give an explanation why it's the most important thing about us. And he says, we tend to, as a secret law of the heart, move towards our mental image of God. In other words, if we see God as loving and kind, inclined to bless us, to take care of us, to forgive us. In other words, if we see God as good, we'll move towards him. On the other hand, if we see God as harsh or aloof or indifferent, unapproachable, then of course, if we see God as not being good or less than good, then of course we're going to move away. We're not going to draw near. We'll keep him at a distance. So I mentioned that back in my college years, I came back to God, which implies clearly that there was a time when I kind of distanced myself from him. And for me, college represents that. And for me, I could never get to the point where I stopped believing in the existence of God. It just never has made sense to me, uh, some of the common views. It always seems for me to take more faith to believe that everything we see just occurred because there's a self-existent and self-determining uh, universe that through its mechanisms of evolution has brought us to where we are here today. Um, that takes more faith to me. God makes more sense as to who we are and why we're here and how we got here. So while I believed that God existed, I didn't want him close. I wanted to keep him at an arm's length, to keep him on the periphery of my life. 
It's easy to see today, now that I look back, that my view of God was less than flattering, um, and it wasn't very strong. Um, and as I think about it now, I think there's probably two reasons why I was where I was at. I'll call it kind of the surfacey reason um, and kind of a, a deeper issue and a deeper reason going on. On the surface, I was just eager to pursue my own life. Um, I wanted to pursue my ideal of what life would be if it was at its best, um, kind of the good life I had. One, that I was going to be super wild and crazy, but I knew enough about God that some of my desires would likely take me outside of the bounds of the things that he would prescribe as something as good for my life. And so I was unwilling to let it go, and I was unwilling to yield it to God. And so I let distance creep in. That's the surface reason. But I know now that there was a deeper issue going on with me uh, that also contributed to my reason for not wanting to be close to God. The deeper issue had to deal with the family challenges and issues uh, that my family faced when I was growing up. There was a lot of pain, there was a lot of confusion, uh, and there was much, much hurt. Alcohol made my dad quite angry, very unpredictable, and at times physically abusive. And so for me, that and some of the other challenges that they faced in their marriage, the constant fighting, the constant uh, just fear that was going on in the home, that's my number one memory when I look back at my childhood, is that I just remember being afraid. I felt vulnerable, I felt alone, and I didn't know who to trust. And if not consciously, probably subconsciously, I guess I figured... God didn't know what was going on. Or if God did know what was going on and he didn't care, that's another possibility. Or maybe God knew what was going on and he cared, but he chose not to do anything about it. No matter which one of those you let yourself believe, obviously it's not one that endears yourself to God because where is he in my pain? Why didn't he show up? How can a good God allow this kind of thing to go on? So I set out on my own, thinking that I knew better than dad. But my pursuits, they left me angry. They left me hurting. They left me empty. And uh, they didn't attain to the very stuff that I thought they'd bring me. So not only did I miss the good life, I felt the stinging embarrassment that the life that I was living, I was not good in that life. I didn't like the person that I was becoming. And so it was not well with my soul. And I knew there in my dorm room, it was time for me to reconsider my views of God. And so with my face down in the mud, so to speak, I cried out to him. And it's been a good run. Have you ever stopped to think all of all the things that shape your views of God? Where does your view of God come from? So many things help shape how we think about God. Perhaps the greatest and, and, and the one that has the most influence by far is our family systems, right? Whether it's the experiences you go through like I did, where you go through some hurt and pain and you project that upon the character of God and you wonder what he's like because of all of that. Or it's just the traditions you grew up with, uh, the church that you went to or the belief or lack of belief that is in the home. Those things shape us powerfully and our views of God. And sometimes we never just stop to examine. And we go through life just accepting, hey, that's, that's how I got raised. 
Maybe it's our friends. Our friends have a big impact. Uh, the social groups that you run with and how vogue it is to talk about God or to be a believer in God. Certainly, our education systems plays a role. We live in a pluralistic society where the greatest value in our society says we need to embrace everybody's point of view. All points of view are valid. All points of view are equal is the message that we constantly get. We certainly get that in the media. We see it on TV. Um, I guess I've seen on TV recently that Morgan Freeman is doing a six-part series on the story of God where he's examining religions around the world. And I'll bet you a nickel that what he's going to conclude is that all religions lead to God and we should need to embrace them all because that's pluralism. So let me ask you this morning, do you think you've got it figured out? Do you think you've got an accurate picture of God? What in your deepest heart are your thoughts of God? Let me suggest that whether you've followed God for a long time or whether you're just following or whether you're here this morning and you're just asking the questions, let me suggest that it's easy for us to get this wrong. And here's why. A common mistake that we make is we think God is like us. We project our limitations, our frailties on him. We think God would react the way we react. We think God has a capacity to care that's like our capacity. We know about ourselves that our love is fickle. Our love is flawed. It's imperfect. We can get tired. We can grow weary. We can change. We are very finite, and we have our limits. So we project that on him. But God is so much more than us. It is not easy to comprehend someone so great and so magnificent that there are no limits to his perfection. I want to look at a passage this morning. Um, really love this passage. It's found in Luke. It's in your bulletins. Uh, where we're going to look at a central character of the Bible, the Apostle Peter. And Peter actually got it wrong about God at first as well. But fortunately, by the end of the story, he gets it right. And so I'd like to read for us um, Luke chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. And he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of the fish that were taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. 
This is God's word. Now, what's going on in this passage? Um, it's the calling of the disciples to follow Jesus. Now, these guys likely already knew of Jesus. He was a phenomenon happening in the region. Maybe they had even heard him preach, but certainly the region was above with conversation of this new rabbi and questions about him and wondering who he was and was he indeed the one from God. And so I can imagine these guys mending their nets together or out on the boats having long conversations. But on this particular day, he enters into their world uniquely and specifically. And he does something for them that they have never seen before. And they knew immediately what was going on. See, these guys were professional fishermen. They've been fishing since they were this big. Right? It's something their moms or their dads passed down to them and their granddads probably passed down to them. It's, what they, it's who they were. It's not just what they did. They were fishermen and they were professionals. They knew exactly how to do this. And so they've been out occasionally where nothing was there to be caught. And that night was one of those nights. So I'm sure they were frustrated. They were tired. They're just ready to pack it in, clean their nets, and, and go live for another day. And along comes Jesus and says, try the other side of the boat. Go out into the deep water. And immediately the nets are full. And so these guys catch exactly what is going on. They know in an instant, this is something otherworldly. This is supernatural. And I am very intrigued by Peter's response. It's not the response I expected to read. Do you see what he did? He said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Interesting. But when you think about the Bible, that's the common response. When God reveals his glory, when God reveals his greatness, we want to distance ourselves from him. Now, look at the response. Or actually, again, you scare me. Peter's saying, get out of here. The greatness of God rouses fear. Look at Jesus' response to him. Don't be afraid. While God's greatness rouses fear within the human heart, his goodness says, don't be afraid. And then he invites us not only into relationship with him, but his goodness invites us into the good life that he intended for us to have. And he said, from now on, guys, you're going to join me in my work. We're going to fish for men. In this passage, the Bible demonstrates for us or teaches us in the person of Jesus what it means when it says God is good. Now, it bears definition because a lot of times when we think of good, we think of moral goodness. We think of uh, being righteous or being holy. And certainly God is good in the sense of morally and righteously. But that's not what this word means. This word is a relational goodness. This word speaks about the character of God that inclines him to be loving towards us, to forgive us, to draw near to us, to care for us, to bless us. It's the part of God that pursues us so that we can know him. It speaks of his relational goodness. And it's not just the actions of God that it's speaking about. It's speaking about who he is. He is goodness itself, its very essence, a goodness that knows no bounds, has no limits, is unchanging, as full as it possibly can be. He is infinite in measure, he is perfect, and he is unspoiled in that goodness. His character contains all virtues, all goodness, all that is beautiful, all that is right, and he holds it in the fullest measure. 
Now, at this point in my preparation, I actually felt a sense of inadequacy. My inability to find words to describe the indescribable. So I gave myself a little treat. I uh, went online to YouTube. Um, I was aware of a sermon by Dr. S.M. Lockridge, which stands for Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge. I love it. Um, he's now with the Lord, but what a fantastic gift to the church. An African-American preacher in the inner city church of San Diego, a very prominent church in that city. And uh, he has a sermon called, That's My King, Do You Know Him? And using the familiar cadence of a contemporary Dr. Martin Luther King, such a beautiful oration, he goes on for six and a half minutes to describe his king. I can't do what he does, but I can give you some of his words. Listen to this. That's my king. My king, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient, and his reign is righteous. His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. That's my king. Do you know him? Six and a half minutes he goes on. Such a beautiful, beautiful description of our Lord. Okay, I've quoted A.W. Tozer. I've quoted S.M. Lockridge. What is it about smart, great, gifted people like C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, you know, N.T. Wright? I wonder if I could get away with going by J.S. Kern. I don't know if that worked. How does someone get to know God like that? The good news, because God is good, he'll pursue you. He'll be relentless in his pursuit, whether you're trying to keep him at arm's length or not. Listen to what he says in Jeremiah 32, verse 40, and he says, And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will never stop doing good for them. Do you hear it? This is God revealing his heart. He'll be relentless in his goodness. I will never stop doing good. He will pursue us and pursue us and pursue us, not with just some general goodness, but with a unique and specific goodness tailored for you. It's who God is. It's his nature to be loving and kind and to care for us. It's what the Bible means when it says, our God is good. Now, I love another story that I just want to touch on because it, it, it fills out this concept of the goodness of God for us. And it's found in another story where God is initiating a relationship with a prominent character in the Bible. This time it's Moses. And he selects Moses for a job that he has for him to do. And you know the story where God says, I'm going to take my people out of slavery in Egypt and I'm going to lead them into the promised land. And Moses, you're going to be my man. And you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to give him my demands. A very big challenging task that would strike fear in the heart of anybody going before the most powerful man on the face of the earth. 
And so Moses says, God, if I'm going to do this, I need to know something about you. And I need to know that you're going to be with me. I need to draw near to you and you need to draw near to me. Show me your glory. And God says back to Moses, he says, okay, Moses, I'll do that for you. I'll show you my glory. But no one can look upon the fullness of my glory. No one can look upon my face and live. But I'll show you who I am. And so he describes what's going to happen in Exodus 33. And in describing the event, listen to this. He says, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. And I will proclaim my name in your presence. Interesting. Then he describes the event in Exodus 34, and God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord compassionate and gracious, the Lord who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands and the one who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. He is a just God. Did you catch it? God, when he reveals his glory, talks about his attributes. And the attribute that sums them all up he said, I will make my goodness pass before you. The sum of all of God's greatness, the sum of all of God's attributes is manifest and described in his goodness. It is his goodness that shows itself in compassion and grace. It's his goodness that makes him slow to anger. It's God's goodness that causes him to abound in love and faithfulness for all of us. Yes, his greatness rouses fear, but his goodness says, don't be afraid. Draw near and experience the blessings that I have for you. And these two passages, one about God with Moses and the other about Jesus with the disciples, we see the goodness of God. And the reason I love these passages, and in particular the one in Luke, is nowhere is the goodness of God more evident than in the person of Jesus. He is the exact representation of the nature of God according to Hebrews, and he demonstrates goodness. He demonstrates how badly God wants you. He demonstrates how far God will go in his relentless pursuit of finding you because he left heaven's glory and he took upon himself our punishment and our sin. And he died the most horrendous death in our place that he might demonstrate that he loves us. Some of you, like me, have gone through difficult times and it causes you to question the goodness of God. Let me just say that if you ever doubt, just remember Jesus because he demonstrates how far God is willing to go for you. So I want to take a moment today and just leave us with a couple of questions as we begin this nine-week series of the line. It's kind of like what we do on our strategy retreat. One of my favorite things we do as pastors, we go away and we do some planning and praying. At the end of the day, we like to get together and ask some deeper questions of one another. One of my favorites is... Um, just the question is, if you could spend a day with Jesus or a year with the Apostle Paul, which one would you do? Um, and so we sit around and we tell each other our answers. I've come up with my own answer. I'll take a year with Jesus. <laughs> I kind of like that. But I'd like to kind of invite you into that setting. Get you to think a little bit deeper. First question or sets of questions 
do you ever wonder what you would have done if you were one of the disciples? And he said, follow me. I do. I hope that I would follow. And in that question, it's hard sometimes to put ourselves in that context. So let me ask it this way. Do you see God as good? Good enough as someone that you don't want to be distant from, but good enough that you'll draw near to him and follow? How about today, practically? Where do you see Jesus as asking you to follow? Maybe you're facing some situations at work, an ethical challenge at work, where you could make a decision that no one would know about, but you and God would know. But you know, on one hand, it would be something that would honor God. On the other hand, you know you would be violating your conscience. But there's a lot of temptation to go this way. Is God good enough for you that you can draw near to him and trust him in that situation? How about in an area of your own life that perhaps you've just been struggling with time and again, and you've fallen repeatedly over and over again, and you're actually just sick of it. And you tell yourself each time, I'm not going there again. But soon you find yourself right back in that same place. Is God's goodness strong enough for you to draw near to him, to realize that he loves you and he'll walk with you every step of that way? Perhaps it's in a relationship, husbands and wives. Um, this is not easy what we do in our marriages. We, opposites attract and then they attack. And so we have difficulty sometimes in our relationships, don't we? And sometimes it can get so bleak that we wonder, where's this thing going? Is God good enough to draw near, to invite him into that situation so you can courageously follow him? So much of your answer depends on the, your thoughts of God. How do you see him today? If you're hesitant to come to him, to surrender your heart, what is it about your view of God that makes you afraid of him? The reason this is so important is if we miss this, we'll miss God and we'll miss the good life that he is calling us to. It took me a while, but I realize now that I did not see God as good. But his relentless pursuit walked past my arm that was trying to keep him away, and he drew near to me that I might draw near to him. And I can't imagine the life that I would have had had I not surrendered to him. I was recently with some college students, and I shared some of the story with them, and I said, I made this decision when I was your age. And now, looking back now on the decades of my life in between, it has been so rich. It has been so full. It's not always been easy. That's not what I'm talking about. But he's been there. He has given me a life far beyond my wildest dreams and hopes and expectations that I had for myself. It has been so much better than my paltry little plans. He is good. In his goodness, he's drawing you. Will you follow? The second question that I'd like to have you think about is how does my relationship with God, the one who is good, impact my actions, impact my character, so that his goodness becomes a part of me? How do I become good, not just for my sake, but for the sake of others? It's the same question we're going to be asking each week, as Sam mentioned in this series, um, uh, of the vine. 
as we're looking at the nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit that are really nine attributes of God's character that he says he'll build into us. So the way it happens for us is the exact same way it happened for the disciples. He said, follow me, draw near to me, walk with me that I might be able to demonstrate and give to you my goodness. In John 15, as Sam mentioned, Jesus teaching on this principle said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you'll stay connected to me, my life will flow through and into you, and I'll produce these characteristics in your heart. So the way we grow in goodness is by coming to the one and being in relationship with the one who is good. That's how it happens. And so, how is that going to happen for you? Are you drawing near to God? Are you surrendering your heart to him? Let me end where we began. The most important thing about you are your thoughts of God. My prayer today is that I expanded just a little bit, maybe a lot, your view of him, that you might realize how good our God really is. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And above all, Lord, thank you for your goodness. A goodness that knows no limits, a goodness that knows no bound, a goodness that will not be thwarted and will not be stopped. A goodness that pursues us with a relentless passion and love. God, I know there's some here today because of hurts can identify that maybe it's tough for them to trust you. I pray, God, that you and your goodness will draw near to them, that they might experience your healing touch, that they might experience your love. And God, for all of us, my prayer is that we would see you in the fullness of your glory, that we might draw near to you and experience your goodness as a part of our lives as well. We pray this all in the powerful and the risen name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.